Welcome to episode 82 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn. Today on the show, I speak to Martha McIntyre. Martha is an anthropologist who initially studied history at the University of Melbourne and then moved on to postgraduate study in anthropology at the University of Cambridge and gained her PhD at the Australian National University. She was elected a Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia in 2012. Martha has undertaken research in Papua New Guinea for over 30 years. Martha has combined anthropological and historical scholarship with practical and policy concerns as an advisor and consultant to the Papua New Guinea government and several multinational corporations. She has particular interest in questions about changes in women's power, health and well-being in the context of rapid social change and has written extensively on gender, human rights and violence against women. In this episode, Martha and I discuss why healthcare in Papua New Guinea continues to be inadequate. We also discuss the contribution of anthropology to the international development sector, along with Martha's hopes and fears for the future of PNG. Martha wrote an article for the Dev Policy blog in April 2019 on the catastrophic failure of health service delivery in PNG. We've included a link to the article in our show notes. For more coverage on healthcare in PNG and the Pacific, visit the Dev Policy blog. We did say we were bringing you coverage of the new aid partnership strategy this week. Unfortunately, that interview had to be delayed, but we hope to bring it to you next week. Enjoy the episode. Martha, thanks for speaking with me. You've said there are catastrophic failures in health service delivery in Papua New Guinea. What's the evidence for that? I think the evidence comes from a lot of research that's done by health professionals by health researchers. I can think of two things that really kind of influenced my thinking on this, or three. One one were my own observations, now out of date, but things haven't changed. The first one is the disastrous spread of tuberculosis that is rampant in some of the rural communities. I have a friend who's been doing research on this, Penny Johnson, in uh, Gulf Province. And Gulf Province is particularly bad. It's a sort of swampy, horrible area, (laughs) a lot of it. And the health service provision for people outside the main hospital areas, which would be Daru, have to walk or paddle canoes for sometimes days to reach a hospital. This is not only bad for people, you know, with tuberculosis, but people with injuries, and particularly for uh, maternity cases. That's an area that I know quite a bit about because of reading uh, Penny Johnson's work. But also, Joe Chandler did a very interesting report on tuberculosis in that region, And it's well worth reading to understand the many problems, you know, that uh, things of transport, of medical supplies, of the standard of hospital care, of the lack of isolation facilities that perpetuate the spread of tuberculosis. So that would be one reason. The other uh, area that I've had a particular interest in for a long time is maternal health. That has been recognised as a, as a problem in Papua New Guinea for a very long time. The estimates on the death rate in Papua New Guinea 
are extremely high. They suggest you know anything from between sixty and a thousand or to twenty and a thousand. It's very hard because it's so hard to do the research there. But reading the work that's been done, say by Glenn Moller, I, I was looking at some of his work that has influenced me, and he outlines the ways in which health outcomes are affected, you know, the lowest status and limited autonomy of women, so that, you know, quite often they won't let women go to a hospital. They say, oh, no, you know, birth's normal, have it in the village, and the woman dies because of some complication. The illegality of abortion, so that uh, abortions are carried out illegally and and in not very sanitary conditions often. The high rates of early marriage. I mean, people who have their babies very young are more likely to die than people who have them when they're over 20. Lower education of women. And a recent study that I think Glenn Moller cites in one of his articles shows that the available health workforce for reproductive, maternal, newborn and child health says that PNG only has 24% of the workforce required to meet current needs. Now, that seems to me to be a good enough reason to claim that, you know, this is catastrophic. 70% of people practically don't have access to, to good health care that is necessary. And approximately 30, you know, well, 80%, it's always quoted as 80% live in the rural areas, but 30% live in very remote areas and do not have access to any health facility. These are the people that Penny's been studying. So that 35% of women, according to Glenn Moller's work, show that they never attend an antenatal clinic during their pregnancy. All of these things indicate that they're not even caught in the data. The rates of death, of maternal death, could be much higher than those estimated by the World Health or the various international studies because they're all estimates. The thing about Papua New Guinea is that, you know, we know that research is hard to do there. There's not enough data on on health, accurate data. But the real problem is that when there is accurate data, it's always worse than you thought. You know, if you have 30% of your population not having access to any health care facility, that is dire. It is dire. You paint a particularly awful picture for women in Papua New Guinea when you talk about the lack of maternal health care, access to abortion, access to water and sanitation. Do you think the situation has gotten any better for women over the last 30 years? I do. I, you know, I mean, we don't have accurate data for 30 years ago for health, but there are lots of areas where women's lives are improving. Education, there are more girls going to school, more girls receiving education. Uh, more women are being employed in ways that, you know, they gain uh, professional qualifications and they're moving out of the very narrow sectors that they were formerly confined to. You know, before, I think, 30 years ago, there were kind of very definite women's jobs. The professional ones were nursing and teaching. Now, you see with further education, 
they're moving into other areas. And uh, I know, you know, working in the mining sector, I observe this, you know, women who work as botanists, as environmental people in the environment section, as chemists and engineers. There is a great improvement. I also, in the late 1990s, early uh, 2000s, worked with the police force. Now, police force has some problems in Papua New Guinea, but one of the things then was looking at promotion, at the number of women recruited, at the status of women within the force, the jobs they did. And I see, because I've kept in touch with some of the women I worked with there, some of the police women, that they their situation has improved. You now have women who are inspectors. Uh, you now have women working across the board in areas where they were formerly excluded. Those are just some of the areas where women's lives have improved. The thing that I think I feel most optimistic about is that when I first started working and observing what I saw as some of the sort of plight of women with high levels of violence, this is in the 1980s, in ways that struck and, you know, not going to school, high maternal death rates, you know, really dreadful things. But in the 1980s, there was a reluctance on the part of women to see their needs as pressing. There was a suspicion of things that focused on women that still exists there, uh, of, you know, campaigns and uh, around domestic violence, etc. They were seen as sort of foreign interests. Feminism was seen as a foreign interest that didn't apply to Melanesian societies. Now, there are many organisations being run by Papua New Guinean women women who are trained social workers, psychologists, welfare officers, police officers, themselves running the uh, projects on domestic violence, whereas before they were always led by white people who came in from outside and said, you know, this is appalling and something's got to be done. And they'd gather around them a group of supportive women. But I realised I suppose when I was working with the police, so about 20 years ago really, that nothing would change until the whole thing was run by Papua New Guinea women in the way that they wanted it. Although I continued to write about those issues, I stopped thinking I should be doing something about it because not just that, that that's a bit sort of, matronising, but just that it wouldn't work because it was the, the ways in which they saw the problems were important for them had to be in the forefront of any organised campaigns against violence in home, sexual violence, gender violence. I don't think the incidence of these things has altered very much. You know, there's still a lot of gender violence and whatever. But I really do feel optimistic that now the campaigns against it are in the hands of Papua New Guinea women. It's interesting that you say you felt that you couldn't address the problem and that the response had to be led by Papua New Guinean women. How did that make you feel about your role as a humanitarian? I felt that 
I could still write about these things. You know, I, my primary role was always as an academic. I could, if necessary or where it was possible, respond to the uh, to requests from Papua New Guinea women, which I did get, and you know, people who wanted to be have their um, research supervised by me or working in the here where I knew the women there and uh, they would ask me to come and talk to them about ways of, that had been tried elsewhere of assisting. But, you know, I, I feel very strongly now that particularly on such a sensitive area, it's got to come from within because there's such resentment towards you know, educated middle-class white ladies coming in and uh, or men coming in and telling them what to do, even when they're not telling them what to do. Yeah, it, it seemed like that. Did you experience that resentment a lot? No, not really. Uh, I didn't experience it, but Papua New Guinea people are very polite. And so although I never experienced it, I can't say I ever did, except from one man. You know, he was resentful of the whole idea of stopping domestic violence, so I didn't take much notice of him. But I heard a lot of complaints about other people. So you know when you're getting that, that you are possibly generating the same sorts of discomfort and uh, uh, annoyance and that people are, are proud and, you know, they don't like to be seen as inadequate so that I think a lot of aid workers or people working for NGOs somehow make them feel that their response has been inadequate to date. Certainly that's something I've kind of thought about a great deal and looking through my field notes at various times I'd always write down if someone said to me, you know, this person made me feel small or this person didn't, you know. I got a lot of praise too from people for for people they'd worked with, you know, for the things they'd taught them. So it sort of cuts both ways, but I do feel very much now that uh, it's got to come with from within. Change has got to be embraced by people. And... and of course, you know, a lot of these women who are leading uh, organisations like Family PNG or uh, the various groups that are campaigning for women's inclusion in um, leadership, political leadership, they get a lot of flack. To build on that, you attribute the failures of the health system of Papua New Guinea to a lack of political will. So if change does need to come from within, then why do you argue that Papua New Guinean politicians don't care about the health of the people? I don't know why they don't care. I think, you know, it's not something I can answer. All I can say is they don't do anything, which shows a lack of political will. They'll often talk about, you know, the improvements to health care, etc., being necessary. But for too long... The real improvements or the real research or the uh, equipment or the new hospitals has depended utterly on foreign aid. That seems to me 
to indicate where their priorities are. So PNG is a democracy. And when we say that politicians aren't prioritising health, are we also saying that democracy doesn't work? Would a system that wasn't a democracy result in better health outcomes? No, I don't think so. I don't think it would result in better outcomes. You know, I'm very pleased that PNG remains a democratic society. However, over the last few elections, it's become clear that it's not, there are aspects of the democratic process that are not working well in Papua New Guinea. Unless the politicians themselves respond to that, you know, I would see it as not changing. So, for example, um, it's been a while since I've kind of looked at this material, but after the 2012 elections, there were a number of areas where the basic principles of democracy were not upheld. Equal suffrage, one voter, one vote, one value, was compromised utterly by different sized electorates, by inaccurate electoral roll, uh, by polling stations opening at different times, by voting without an electoral roll. You know, you could go on and on and on about the ways that the elections were compromised. The principles of secret ballot, citizens' right to exercise free choice, were compromised by coercion. I had a report from a friend of mine working in Mumbai province that armed people stood by the uh, ballot boxes in one electorate, uh, assisted voting, <laughs> so-called. But, you know, the, one of the big problems in Papua New Guinea is the use of, you know, pork barrelling, of large sums of cash uh, in giving out beer, outright vote buying, you know, at, at, even at polling stations. Just those sort of very basic things about voting, uh, and you could go on about how parliament works and corruption charges are being dropped and a whole range of things about the ways in which democracy is compromised in Papua New Guinea more generally. But I would maintain that, uh, you know, it's nominally de democratic and that's great. They've got the basis to build on, but at the moment they're in some strife. There's also not a single female MP in the Papua New Guinean government. What effect do you think that has? Well, I think it's a terrible situation, but, you know, repeatedly they've opposed any form of, of affirmative action. Power's still very much in the hands of men and they see any affirmative action, whether it be, you know, specified female candidates or representative promotion of, of women candidates by uh, some kind of specific campaign, they see that as a threat to their male authority and they oppose it, so nothing's done. I really admire the women who have formed, you know, organisations in attempts to change that, but it's a very hard road to hoe. You're also very critical of donors in the health sector in Papua New Guinea, saying that the endless audits, flowcharts, grids, log frames, workshops, all of it have achieved very little. What do you think donors are doing wrong in the health sector in Papua New Guinea and what could they do differently? I think the 
there's a real problem about the notion of what aid should do. Donor countries want to be able to say, look what we've achieved with aid. There's this constant setting of short-term goals, which is, to my mind, absolutely pointless in Papua New Guinea. It'd be fine if, you know, for things like infrastructure, etc. But even there, uh, I have a friend who works up there quite regularly, and uh, she's, she goes up to actually train medical staff. And she, she tells me that donors give and, and people, uh, hospitals donate individually, a lot of equipment. So in every hospital she's been in, there is a room full of equipment that nobody knows how to use. I mean, that's the sort of idiocy that goes on. That's just one thing, you know, it sort of struck me. Uh, Susan Crabtree, who wrote a very brilliant uh, thesis on the maternal child, she's a New Zealander, uh, she, she looked at institutional care for, you know, and how it could be improved. And she wrote about her own experience being an observer and trying not to be involved, you know, to be, but to, as a midwife, was working on the midwifery um, she says, uh, you know, on one occasion, you know, there's a baby dying. They have a respirator and nobody knows how to work it. So she, she said that was the only time she intervened because uh, she knew how to work it. I think, you know, that's just a sort of one example of what seems to me a kind of misfit between the aims of improvement and the, you know, of generalised improvement in the health system and what donors do. Uh, now, uh, improving hospital standards, uh, improving buildings, equipment, is very important and I wish they'd do more of it. But my observation of health assistance being given is that the people who go there in order to do whatever project they're meant to do, spend as much time reporting on what they're doing and and demonstrating that they've done it as they do doing it. Now, that is a complete waste of Australian taxpayers' money, of Papua New Guinea people's time. You know, the number of workshops they have on the same issue all the time. I don't know how many people, because, you know, there are kind of, regulations in what's now DFAT or whatever. Every project must have a gender component. So what do they do? They put the same gender component, like they give a little workshop on female human rights, etc. that the poor Papua New Guineans have probably heard about 30 times, you know, with every single project that comes up there. Um, the lack of integration, it's partly because they outsource to companies to do these projects. And that, I think, is the worst aspect of it. The government doesn't really take responsibility. They put the responsibility on places like Cardno and whatever to do this. So Cardno spends all this time proving that they're doing what they've been told to do or what they've worked out to do with the government. The bureaucracy that now surrounds aid seems to me to be an appalling 
waste of time and money and therefore not even halfway successful because they're not even halfway doing what they should. I understand your point. Do you think, though, that there's a risk that when we limit bureaucracy, we go too far in the opposite direction and there's not enough oversight of what the aid sector is doing? Yes, I think that's true. And I think in places like Papua New Guinea, you know, the, the opportunity for corrupt use of aid funds is there and, you know, there has to be some oversight. It's the consultants. They're not just doing oversight. They're kind of running projects and doing whatever. And what's required of them is short-term, achieve this, achieve that, you know. You know, there's not a kind of integrated long-term engagement with the health problems of Papua New Guinea, with the health department, you know, Papua New Guinea's health department is bureaucratic too, so the combination is a disaster. The criticism that aid is too short-termist comes up a lot. In your view, what does a longer-term approach to aid actually look like, though? Well, I don't know. (laughs) I've never seen it. (laughs) Yeah. But I think it would be miles better if it stopped having a kind of – it has – increasingly developed a kind of um, neoliberal economic, uh, even when, even by all the analogies used, you know, targets and we'll have this many and we'll have that many and we'll do this by then. And so that it's all in this mode of, of uh, we will be productive, where I think, you know, we will change things would be much better. You've also written a lot on mining in Papua New Guinea, especially the Lahir mine. And of course, mining in Papua New Guinea has been in the news a bit lately with regard to the pogrom mine. Overall, is Papua New Guinea's resource dependency a good thing or not? I think, unfortunately, overall now it's quite obvious it's a bad thing. But it's ris- the situation would be rescuable. You know, Papua New Guinea needs to have exports. The mining sector has been... It, the such disasters environmentally, not so much on the here, um, although you know they're still dumping stuff, tailings and waste into the sea. But you know, Octeti, Bougainville, the problems associated with rum, there's not one mine where I could say, oh, well, you know, they've really kind of worked it out there and they're not kind of trashing the environment and destroying people's uh, subsistence livelihood in the area. At the moment, I'd say it's a disaster. I think it's possible for mining not to be a disaster. But then when I was working in this area and speak to people in mining companies, that would mean they'd make less profit. So they'd go somewhere else where they could make profit and trash the environment. I think until, you know, internationally, the standards that are required of mines in industrial societies apply all over the world, then uh, it will continue to be a disaster. I mean, disasters probably, well, Octeti is a disaster. It's failed the people who was meant to, whose lives were meant to be improved by it. It's certainly hard to find examples of community-owned and run mines. It's mainly the international mining companies that are in Papua New Guinea. I mean, there's artisanal mining, but that's not very good either. 
because people, you know, use mercury to process gold and dump it in the river themselves, you know. I think I can hear your dog playing with a toy, perhaps. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so a question I really want to ask you, I also studied anthropology at uni in my, my undergraduate and my master's were both in anthropology. And I've always felt that the contribution of anthropology to development is quite underrated. So in your view, what contribution does anthropology make? to the development sector? The development sector grew out of applied anthropology, you know, the social science of, uh, of anthropology and, social science and sociology. So, you know, it had its origins in applied anthropology. If you look at what applied anthropologists were doing in the 1950s and 60s, it's what's called development studies now. Almost all people who do development studies, and I found this very interesting when I was working as a consultant, at some stage study anthropology. They combine it with it or uh, there are anthropology subjects that count towards a development studies degree. So that most practitioners work with some understanding of anthropological critiques or uh, ways of doing research. I mean, the... and. I certainly notice, uh, and I would say uh, I've reviewed um, projects, proposed projects for other countries apart from Australia by their equivalent of DFAT. And it's very interesting how the jargon, there's a time lag, but the jargon of anthropology is taken up. I first noticed it with, oh, when would it be? In in the 1980s, when suddenly Foucault and governmentality and governance, the word governance, you know, which came from before it used to be called government or administration. And then suddenly you got everybody concerned with governance. Uh, so the two things, you know, filter across. The questions raised, you know, and, and because social scientists, unfortunately, are very territorial, so you get the development studies people or the human geographers or lots of people doing the same thing, essentially, are uh, very territorial. And, oh, no, 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 you know, anthropologists are this and human geographers are that. and uh, But really the flow of ideas across is enormous. And of course, working as an anthropologist in Papua New Guinea would have led to so many fantastic experiences and stories for you, I imagine. Yes, indeed. You know, I mean, I spent, I once sat down and calculated that the number of weeks and months I've spent there since I did the research for my PhD, which is, of course, the longest, that was a 13 month stint. I've been in Papua New Guinea for 11 years which is quite extraordinary when you add it all up. It's, uh, it's been a fantastic experience. You know, I know, you know, I'm critical, but I'm just as critical of, of Australian policies in Australia. And I remain hopeful because I know so many fantastic people in Papua New Guinea. You know, you know I might kind of rail against the government for not having outposts and aid posts. I mean, 
in in remote areas. But two bear, two bear, that little island in Milne Bay where I did my field work uh, has uh, a little aid aid post uh, where the only person who uses it is a nurse who comes across from another island and visits or someone who trained in very basic nursing aid training. Now, that is just an empty space with a mattress on the floor. It's got some scales so that when the nurse comes over and does an antenatal clinic, the mother can be weighed. Uh, It's got a screened-off area, a table and a chair and a bamboo floor and bamboo walls. It's kept spotlessly clean by that person who trained as a a nursing aide. And, you know, the commitment from nurses and and the commitment from people who have nothing, you know, she has nothing. She's a subsistence gardener. And, And I think that gives me a lot of hope. And it's people like that who are, organizing now you know the women in leadership people the the people who are organizing and setting up programs for helping victims of violence etc so yeah I remain very hopeful I love Papua New Guineans (laughs) last question then to finish in those 11 cumulative years in Papua New Guinea do you have a favorite story or a favorite place even Tubi Tubi remains my favorite place I think I've often thought about this, um, you know, whether it's some kind of uh, imprinting like Conrad Lorenz's ducks, you know, the first thing they fix on they think is their mother um, because Tuba Tuba was the first place that I went. But it's exceptionally beautiful, you know, a small island in a very beautiful part of the world with reefs all around. People were prepared to welcome me. I've written about, you know, favourite stories. I don't have one that immediately springs to mind. I think the thing that endures for me is when I went there, uh, they were very anxious about my isolation, word that has heavy meaning at the moment. (laughs) They were very, that I was alone. And, And when they heard I had two daughters at home, in Australia, they thought that I might kind of pine and and I wouldn't be able to manage much because I had never lived in uh, a village before. So they gave me to adopt two daughters to fill the sort of gap. And I think that is such an extraordinary, when I think back onto it, they were so on the ball. You know, those girls taught me how to speak the language, they taught me how to garden, they stopped me from making faux pas and I've remained in touch with them ever since. Now I can talk to them on the phone all the time. (laughs) uh, In those days, you know, it was only by letters and I've kept all their letters. Absolutely wonderful people. That's really special. Thanks for sharing that story and thanks Martha for your time. That was Martha McIntyre on Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. See you next week.